we'll direct your attention to a couple of verses of scripture. First of all, Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, and then just one verse in Ephesians chapter 4, verse, verse 8. I'd like to speak about that which changed heaven forever, that which changed heaven forever. <clears throat> On the day of Jesus' resurrection, the afternoon, he was walking with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. <clears throat> and um, I would have loved to have been just a fly on the wall and heard him speak and expound in all the scriptures, all the Old Testament scriptures, the things concerning himself. But he gave a word of rebuke to those two disciples in verses 25 and 26. They had been sad when they should have been glad. They should have believed uh, what had been written. And he said in verse 25, oh, fools and slow of heart. They weren't defective intellectually. They were slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? There's a similar verse found in um, 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll read that in a moment. But in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, just that one verse, wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. You're probably wondering, what does this have to do with praying for revival and what we're talking about today? Well, could I start by making somewhat of a confession? I am, am, am ashamed to admit that I've been in the ministry for 42 years and am just now beginning to make an in-depth study of the transcendent theme of the surpassing glory of Jesus Christ. But what I have learned is enough to spur me on. It's ravishing my heart. It's giving me a new relish for the word of God. It's giving me a new impetus in prayer. And I find myself praying, as has often been mentioned here on this Zoom prayer meeting, the prayer of Moses, Lord, show me thy glory. We are praying in this meeting that takes place six days a week, though I'm only usually able to join you on Saturday. We are praying for the revival of religion and for the advancement of God's kingdom on earth. But you know, even if revival tarries, and it may, I hope we will not grow weary in well-doing, but we will pray as Christ commanded us Thy kingdom come. I don't know about you, but if I pray that prayer sincerely, it cannot be in vain. Jesus commanded me to pray it. Thy kingdom come. I think it's not so much revival we need or should seek as it is the God of revival. I was jolted recently by a statement I read in the peerless work of the Puritan John Owen in this book. This is one edition, The Glory of Christ, the last book that he wrote. You could just sense that he had heaven on his heart and in, in, in his sights. And he said this in this book, he wrote this, heaven itself, heaven itself was not what it is now since the entrance of Christ into his glory. 
when he ascended and entered the heavenly sanctuary as our great high priest, end of quote. So for a few moments, could I dwell on that? Could I expand on that? Because I think if people can see the glory of Christ on our countenance, because we have been much with him, Satan will rue the day that he ever let this devotional come off. First of all, Old Testament saints who departed, when we look at the language of the Old Testament, they came short of the glory of New Testament saints that they enter into immediately when they die in the faith of Christ. Old Testament saints came short of that. We can tell from putting scriptures together that they were comforted in Abraham's bosom as we read about Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. But there was no high priest said to be there. There was no lamb upon the throne. There were no ascriptions of glory given by departed saints in the Old Testament. Why? Because God had provided some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect, as we read in Hebrews 11, verse 40. Now, we do read that dying saints in the Old Testament were gathered to their fathers. They slept with their fathers. King David, after his great sin and upon the death of his baby, said, I shall go to him. But nothing is said about being with the Lord. Have you ever thought about that? Nothing is said about being with the Lord upon departing this life, much less seeing God or beholding his glory. Probably the nearest thing is what Job said, yet in my flesh shall I see God. But that was prospective. That was not after he died. Upon death, New Testament saints immediately experience an undimmed apprehension of Christ's glory. Before Jesus ascended and entered into the glory of his sanctuary, no departed saint, not even the holy unfallen angels themselves participated in the glory which now they enjoy. And so the companion text to Luke 24 would be 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 1 verse 10. Let me find that, make sure I have the right one. But um, give me just a moment. I thought I had it marked. Verse Peter 1, verse 10, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ, and the glory that should follow. Essentially the same thing Jesus said to the Emmaus disciples. Old Testament saints and prophets and angels all desired to to look into the things that are revealed unto us. But Jesus had to suffer and die before he could enter into that glory. Uh, This just staggers my mind, I'll be honest. Do we realize and I hope I'm not exaggerating here. I don't think I am. But do we realize that even heaven itself had to be purified by the sacrifice of Christ? That's what the Bible says in Hebrews 9.23. It was necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens, that's what was the furnishings and the materials and the tabernacle, the temple. It was necessary that the pattern of things in the heavens should be purified with these 
but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. It was almost as if the things in heaven were defective or somewhat defiled, not fit to accommodate the joint worship of the whole society of heaven and earth until the glorified God-man made his ascent and his accession to the throne. Paul says in Colossians 1 verse 20, that Christ made peace through the blood of his cross. And why did he do it? To reconcile all things unto himself, even the things that are in heaven. The things in heaven weren't reconciled until he died. But upon the entrance of Christ into the heavenly sanctuary, Old Testament saints are admitted to the same glory, or were admitted to the same glory that New Testament saints enjoy. And I'm not going to be dogmatic as to when that happened. Uh, some Bible scholars feel that uh, Jesus actually went to heaven between the time he told Mary, touch me not. And then later he told his disciples, uh, touch me because the spirit hath not flesh and bone as you see me. I'm not going to be dogmatic about when, whether it was then or at his actual ascension 40 days later. But one thing we can be sure of for the first time, for the first time, they fully understood the types and rituals that they had been witnessing and practicing for years. It was a watershed moment. Something wonderful was inaugurated when Jesus robbed paradise and led captivity captive. I think we have somewhat of a sneak preview of that and an enactment of it in the closing verses of Psalm 24, where there's that dramatic antiphonal response as the entourage with the ascended Christ approaches heaven and uh, the question comes out, who is this king of glory? Who is this king of glory? After the command, open up ye gates, lift up ye gates and let the king of glory come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts, the Lord mighty in battle. And again, the antiphonal question, who is this king of glory? The answer, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. With no hesitation, let us say the time of Christ's entrance into heaven, into that holy sanctuary, was the greatest moment of glory that ever was or ever shall be. Before then, neither saints or angels participated in that glory, which now they do participate in. So the blessedness of being with Christ, that's what Jesus prayed for in John 17, 24. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. Beloved, we're going to see him someday. We're going to see him as he is. We don't have the apparatus. We don't have what it takes to see him as he is now. We see him through a glass darkly, through the gospel, through the ordinances. But one day we will see him as he is, though it doth not yet appear what we shall be. And even now, we need to be tantalized. We need to be propelled by the description of what we will experience when we shall be like him. I close with that wonderful verse, another verse in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, that says, even now, this is not something future, even now we are coming to Mount Zion. We are coming to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, 
and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Did you notice that phrase? These are the Old Testament saints who now behold Christ's glory, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. We are never closer to the church triumphant in heaven than when we are doing what we are about to do, worshiping the same glorified lamb upon the throne. So let's live in prospect of that. Let's get practiced up for it. Let's anticipate it. Let's have an eye single to that transcendent glory of Jesus Christ. Thank you.